This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Uh, I want to thank uh, Cole and uh, company for, for suggesting this talk. Um, why do I keep existing? A lecture on being. Um, and it was a really nice opportunity for me to, uh, to look at, into some recent work uh, that was done by uh, your very own Professor Paul Audie, uh, who has done some work on this idea of existential inertia. Uh, so in this talk, um, my job here is to find some points of commonality between a Thomistic approach and a contemporary analytic approach illustrated very nicely in Professor Paul Adi's recent paper on existential inertia I just mentioned. I wanted to avoid merely translating the problematic developed by Adi into a Thomistic framework and within that jargon that comes with uh, a different framework, um, which sometimes in so doing uh, loses some interesting and fruitful points of contrast between the two. So in other words, in this uh, talk, I approach this question from a different philosophical perspective and, and focus than as if I were to come at it from a purely Thomistic approach. Um, some of you may be familiar with the work of, uh, of uh, Dr. Ed, Edward Fazer, who has also uh, worked on this idea of existential inertia as well. So, you know, I like to think that in this approach, I really tried to, to get into uh, the mind or the head of a contemporary analytic uh, metaphysician um, to, in order to do some of these uh, points of comparison and analysis. Um, as a result of doing this, I feel like I have attained some fresh perspectives myself on traditionally conceived Thomistic principles. I'll give you a couple of examples, which uh, you'll see uh, in this talk. So the first example, in thinking about existential inertia within the parameters of Professor Audi's paper, I was able to see the concept of present time, or the present, in a new light, even being able to connect it up with a notoriously difficult idea, which is Boethius's very famous definition of eternity. More about this later. Another example of, I think, a fresh perspective that I was able to have on this topic um, is how I was forced to look at being an existence in a passive way. And, you know, for a Thomist, thinking about existence in a passive way sort of gives us the shakes a little bit, right? Uh, and this is because in a Thomistic account, existence is the principle of principles, right? It's uber active. Uh, and so, yet I found some precedents in, in the Thomistic framework uh, for actually thinking about existence uh, also in a kind of passive way, which is tends to be the way that uh, it's looked at uh, in contemporary metaphysics. Now, of course, the danger of this approach is that I miss something, okay, or Perhaps I missed something fundamental about one or the other approaches. So I just ask for your patience uh, and to help me with uh, thinking through this. 
All right, so why do things have existential inertia? This is our main question here. But of course, you know, we have to ask the question, what are we even talking about? If you were to talk to someone, random person on the street and ask them about existential inertia, um, you know, they might call the police or something, right? I mean, this is not something that uh, we often think about. So what does the question even mean? And what are we really looking for when we're looking for existential inertia? Well, since inertia is borrowed from physics, perhaps we can use physical inertia as a metaphor for existential inertia. Something like this. Existential inertia is a feature of existing things by which they continue in a state of existence or non-existence, which is an interesting side point. So continue in a state of existence or non-existence unless changed by an external cause. And it didn't actually, there wasn't too much that we had to do to that definition of physical inertia to put it within a kind of existential context. So we can extend this idea to bring to mind cases in which existential inertia might fail. Certainly, and this is, I'm coming at this from a pop physics perspective, not from an expert position. Certainly the quantum mechanical world in which virtual particles pop in and out of existence, even temporarily violating the law of conservation of energy might be something like, or an analog, a physical analog to the failure of existential inertia. So what, pre what prevents macro-sized objects included from popping out of existence? It doesn't seem to be the kind of change that can be regulated or secured by some more intermediary process or laws, such as growth or local motion, local motion or you know, development or you know, some, something like that, biological development or something like that. This is a very fundamental Thing. And the vouchsafing of that existential inertia sort of has to bring us to, to, to a, a more fundamental look on this. So even on a frozen view of things, a so-called 4D block view of things, wherein things are a fusion of space-time points, space-time worm type of, of idea, um, where there's a kind of changeless and simple status to existing things, so they're frozen in this transcendingly temporal way. Why can't some space-time region itself be annihilated or pop out of existence? It's a nice point that Professor Adi raises in his paper. What metaphysical principle could we point to to prevent it from doing so? Or to secure our judgment that it won't pop out of existence? This is what we're looking at today. So why would an answer to this question be important? Existent, existence uh, was often thought of, especially in 20, 20th century analytic philosophy, as a kind of abstraction without content, um, and so not really uh, worth our time to think about. But as Paul Adi identifies for us, investigating such a question gets us to a, a recognition, or gets us to recognize, what, what general metaphysical considerations might be relevant or foundational 
to existential inertia, whether by supporting it or by supporting its opposite, a tendency to expire. So it can provide for us insight into a more fundamental ontology, perhaps. To get a little more clarity on this, let's state exactly what existential is, existential inertia is, and what its contrary would be. So existential inertia thesis, and this comes basically from uh, Adi's paper. If undisturbed and inactive, whatever exists is poised to continue to exist. The contrary is existential expiration thesis. If undisturbed and inactive, whatever exists is poised to cease to exist. So it's important to emphasize the idea of being undisturbed and inactive, since it gives us a clearest intuition about existential inertia at work. And this is indicated directly in the thesis. Although certainly existential inertia and exploration would be at work among the active interactions and adventures that objects find themselves in, its existential inertia would indeed be hidden by all this noise. And so really looking at a more fundamental, a sort of all things being equal view in which we are able to identify what is the hook, you might say, that we can hang the continuity of basic existence upon. So, okay, so I mentioned at the beginning, uh, uh, sorry, I mentioned at the beginning of the talk that I don't wish to merely transpose the idea about existential inertia within the presuppositions of a Thomistic metaphysical approach to the issue, but instead to fit my analysis within a more contemporary analytic context. Although perhaps sometimes this is very difficult to avoid, I don't want to merely talk past other metaphysical approaches, such as that presented by Paul Audi in his paper. And as I said, uh, the Thomistic tradition has a very, very um, involved, developed notion of existence. So to help with this project, I shall take some concrete steps to follow some parameters given by Paul Audi in his article on how to treat the question of existential inertia. So we'll try to keep to the following five guidelines. First, for the existential inertia thesis to be true, there can be no thing that exists that doesn't have existential inertia. In other words, there is a general connection between something existing and it having existential inertia. Just as if something is a physical object, it will have inertia. This is contrasted with something like a special condition for existential inertia, such as a certain feature of things that give them existential inertia. This is incompatible with the existential inertia thesis. So we're really talking about what follows from the fact of existence that can connect to it, uh, continuing to exist in this inertial way. Second, second guideline. The EIT and the EET apply to natural and to supernatural things. Especially what we are wanting to include here are things like angels and not just material things. As we shall see with the modification of the idea of the eternal, given by Boethius, there is a connection with the temporal present and the existential inertia as well. And so this existential inertia connects up even with God. Third guideline. 
Existential inertia opposes annihilation. This is not the idea of a kind of coming to be or ceasing to be in a natural sense, in which parts come to compose things at some times and not at others. We're talking about existential explorations in the deeper metaphysical sense of annihilation. It is this type of behavior which is suitable for a change in respect to the deep notion of something ceasing to exist. Fourth, existential inertia is not the product of a special property a thing has or its activity. Rather, existential inertia is understood in a rather passive sense. Although in Thomistic metaphysics, there is a much richer notion of existence, as I've said, yet there is some precedent in Aquinas' thought to think of existence also in a more passive way, or in also in a passive way, something that exists or doesn't exist type of thing. For example, Aquinas sometimes talks about how one can add a further concept to the concept of being, or to what he calls common being. This is an exception to how Aquinas usually talks about common being, which is that it cannot be added to, nor can it be treated as a genus, or Aristotelian notion of a genus, about which some further differentiating concept can be added to yield a more specific idea. Why is that? Because existence is such an active and all-encompassing idea that there can be nothing outside of it that could further specify it. Here we're going to try to keep to an understanding of existence that is itself indifferent to any further specification, neither includes nor precludes it in our consideration of it. This is more of an understanding of a kind of flattened or abstract notion of being as opposed to a richer note uh, idea of a mode of being. So anyway, we're trying to avoid the type of thinking in, in which one thinks that the reason for some medicine putting you asleep is because it has a soporific power. To, to coin that uh, phrase from uh, Moliere, or that there's a property of existence that a thing has by which it keeps itself in existence, a kind of existence perpetual motion machine. Finally, here's our last guideline. An existing thing is undisturbed when not being causally influenced by anything else. In this way, passive existential inertia is not secured causally. Once again, it is not that existential inertia is not at work in the world of causal busybodies, but in a consideration of an existing thing in an undisturbed environment, this gets us to a fundamental grasp, a metaphysical sense, of what might secure or realize existential inertia. Okay, so here is uh, my argument for existential inertia. And so this is what I'll go through and defend, try to uh, raise and respond to some, some counter, uh, counter uh, arguments against it. So it takes up the challenge of what secures this notion of existential inertia that follows the guidelines that I just described. So here's the argument. 
present things have existential inertia. Existing things are present things, and therefore existing things have existential inertia. It's a pretty simple argument. It's clearly valid. Now the question is going to be about the truth of the premises. And, and in terms of the quantity of these propositions, it's really a, you know, a, an AA1 uh, or Barbara uh, syllogistic style, right? So it's, it's a universal quantity that I'm defending here. <clears throat> okay, so I want to point out, though, that to my mind, this argument fits the guidelines given by Adi. Guideline one, he claims that all things that exist have existential inertia, since all things that are present have existential inertia, and all thing, all that exists is present. So it's a form of presentism, right? Metaphysical presentism, all that exists is that which is present. What is revealed in this argument is the idea of being in the present is as broad as the notion as the idea of existence itself. There is some affinity that I have towards this so-called uh, existence uh, presentism. This idea that existence and pre to be present are um, very close ideas to each other, if not identical. Guideline two, it is maintained that both natural and supernatural things have existential inertia, since such things both exist in the present. It is maintained that things like angels exist in the present, and that God can be said to exist in something like the present, which would be suggested in the idea of God as existing in the eternal now, and less so about being timeless. Although this idea of timelessness, uh, there's some definitely some truth to, that, to this idea as well. Specifically, we may be able to show some continuity between the idea of God's eternality and the idea of the present presented in the argument. The Boethian definition of eternity that Aquinas adopts is, quote, the complete and instantaneously whole, perfect possession of interminable life. The complete and instantaneously whole, perfect possession of interminable life. So in its bare bones designation, the notion of the present could be operative here in the idea of a basic possession or expression of existence. In fact, maybe we could strip Boethius's definition of eternality for its parts to then build a decent definition of the present at the sort of opposite limit here, right? The limit of these contingent material things, such as the following. So the present is the incomplete and non-instantaneous, partial and imperfect possession of terminable existence. The present is the incomplete and non-instantaneous, partial and imperfect possession of terminable existence. And of course, there's degrees of this, right? There's degrees of this. More or less complete possessions of existence, etc. But there'll be more on this later. Guideline three, being present opposes a thing as poised to be annihilated, and this in virtue of the fact that it is present. Being present doesn't stand in opposition to a thing 
resisting accidental or substantial change. To exist is to be present, and to be present is to have existential inertia. Guideline four. This notion of being present as related to existential inertia is a passive view of existence. This is seen in the fact that we think of things as existing in the present as if it's a kind of receptacle or repository of content. Perhaps this is indicated through some the following type of grammatical reflection, if that's the right word. It doesn't make sense to think of a thing as presenting itself, as if to be present is an active thing that something does. Guideline five. Being present doesn't seem to be a cause that sustains an existing thing in existence. And so there would be nothing per se in that condition that would preclude existing things from being undisturbed. So it looks like this argument for existential inertia follows the guidelines of Professor Adi. All right, so here's some two quick definitions of the terms of the argument. A present thing is something occurring or existing now. And remember, I'm setting the idea of present off to the side by that sort of modified view of, of the eternal, Boethius of well to use. An existing thing, that which is that which is. Very, very contentful a definition, if you'll notice. So it's not very informative. To say that an existing thing is that which is, is not very informative. Famously, as Aristotle argues, being cannot be defined, since proper definitions come by way of the specification of the genus, which is impossible for being. However, since being is intelligible, the source of intelligibility, one can see that there is some intuitive, intelligible, uh, uh, sorry, intuitions, I should say, um, in the indication of this phrase which might include aspects as having uh, a certain kind that a being belongs to, it's individuated, right? It's, some, it's something, um, it's actual or it's real, uh, that kind of stuff that you sort of throw into an indication of what existence is. Regarding what is meant by present thing, for the purposes of the argument, we're satisfied with using some fairly intuitive ideas about what it means for a thing to be present. However, I'm drawn to the idea that to exist and to be present are two sides of the same coin, although perhaps maybe minimally conceptually distinct. And so another good way to think about the meaning of present thing might be, as I said, the present is the incomplete, non-instantaneous, partial, and imperfect possession of existence. What might be useful about this interpretation is that it is linked with the possession of existence but also with the notion of change, which can be understood as an incomplete or partial possession of existence. When someone changes from pale to tan, they exist in an intermediate place between determinate existence as one thing and the other. This can bring in the temporal aspects of the present very nicely, as we'll see later. So let's dig into the premises of the argument to see if we can't find some justification for them. The first premise we'll examine is the claim that present things have existential inertia. I actually think that this, present, this premise might be surprising, that there is an intelligible linkage between the idea of being a present thing and having existential inertia. However, I've found perhaps 
a decent argument that has this premise as its conclusion. Point one, things that remain in the present have existential inertia. Point two, present things, when undisturbed, remain in the present. Conclusion, present things have existential inertia. So support for the major premise could follow along these lines. Certainly the idea of remaining signifies the carryover of the identity of an object from some present moment to another. This carryover in the present amounts to existential inertia. However, beyond identity expressed through the phrase that things remain, there is a special condition that, that a thing remains specifically present. To be present is to be here and now, and the premise indicates that the thing remains in the here and now. This is a good candidate for existential inertia, to my mind. Another way to approach this premise is to follow the view sometimes called existence presentism that holds that to exist and to be present are really just the same thing. So some translation between the notion of existence and being present can be used to motivate the premise. For certainly something that remains in existence is something that has existential inertia. Since to be present is to exist, then to remain present is also to remain in existence. All right, the second premise, point two, support. There is a qualification to understanding this premise to keep in mind. We're not saying that everything that is present remains present. This would defy the notion that things come to be and cease to be. But rather that those present things that are causally undisturbed remain present. So I think all these things being equal, present things remain present. One can look at truth values of various related propositions, perhaps to get at this truth. Let's think about Rodin's statue of the thinker. At T1, one asserts that the thinker is currently vigorously cogitating, in which one is making a claim about a presently existing thing. At T2, one asserts that the thinker is currently vigorously cogitating, and T1 is not the same as T2, since T1 occurred before T2. However, since both are true propositions about things in the present, and both are about the thinker, it seems to follow that the thinker is a present thing that remains in the present. Okay, so we're still looking at the first premise of the pro-existential inertia argument that states that present things have existential inertia. Specifically, we're looking at a premise of an argument in support of this premise, which is that present things remain present. But there's a reason for rejecting this claim in favor of the idea that present things do not remain in the present. For things that are locked in the present, they remain in the present, are not things that are able to change, seemingly. To get at why this may be the case, we need to look at a famous distinction by McTaggart between the not-so-creatively named A and B series accounts of the temporal ordering of events. On the A series view of time, one and the same thing has changing properties with respect to where it is in the flow of time. So the event of Caesar crossing the Rubicon was once a future event, then it became present, and finally it became past. What operationalizes these properties 
is the mysterious passage of time. The B series, on the other hand, sees the temporal ordering of events or existing things according to the notion of before, simultaneous to, and after. There need be no order of these events by appeal to the properties of past, future, and present, but rather time should be thought of as a kind of timeline in which these temp temporal properties exist in a sense simultaneously. The argument against the claim that present things remain in the present from the unreality of time shall be addressed later on when we seek to support the premise that all existing things are present things. However, on the A-series count, some may claim that something doesn't remain in the present. Rather, things are constantly passing from future to present to past, as if the present is mo a moving spotlight across objects, or like a film projector running the film across the light. It is claimed, and this is related to the counter-reason, that things change, and this is the only way to think about things changing. A thing moves from being future to present to past. Thus, on the view that something that is present remains in the present, is to undermine the idea that things change. It is as if things are frozen still in the present. So the, uh, so the counter reason goes. So what can be said in response to the view that present things remaining in the present is inconsistent with the fact of change? I have two strategies here. The first is to turn the criticism around upon the spotlight view of the present and argue that on that view of time, there can be no change. In themselves, on this view, things exist in a changeless way. These things are merely waiting for their time in the spotlight. Their existence transcends their temporal properties. And so things don't really change, not with respect to their existence, only superficially, it seems, in their relation to the spotlight of the present shining briefly upon them. In this, way, in this way, there can be no coming to be or ceasing to be in a robustly existential sense. And the second strategy for defending the compatibility between the claim, these claims is by providing some account or way of thinking about how something can both remain in the present and change. If only the present exists, how is that the case that things can change? And I will admit that this is, uh, you know, possibly a rabbit hole. All right, so it is helpful to bring back in the more fundamental definition of the present that I presented earlier in the talk, that the present is the incomplete and instantaneous, partial and imperfect possession of existence. I mentioned that this definition might be useful since it links the present with the possession of existence, but also indirectly with the notion of change. One pretty good way of thinking about change is as an incomplete or partial possession of existence. The setup for thinking about change in Aristotle is that every change involves a terminus from which the change begins and the terminus which ends the change and the process in the middle of these two that the subject of change undergoes. When a paper changes from being unfolded to folded, for example, it exists in an intermediate place between determinate existence as one thing or the other, or one state of being or the other. It is not folded, but it's becoming folded. This might be able to leave room for temporal aspects of ordering within the present itself. 
Since things in the present possess existence partially and incompletely, the present itself seems to be dynamic or flexible enough to contain the order of before and after, but as grounded fully in present things. It is like the B series order of before and after is contained within the present itself. It is not that an event that was future is now present and then past, but rather there are only present things in which there is reference to would-be things and already happened things. This is possible through the partial and incomplete possession of existence. So in other words, the present is sort of the spreading out of existence okay, between these two termini, uh, which, is, which characterizes change. All right, so the second premise. Existing things are present things. This is the, a defense of the view called presentism. Some have argued that to exist is just to be present, and to be present means really just to exist. We can look at how propositions work and see that the default view is that to exist is to be in the present. So a key indicator for existence is the present form of the word is. Existence and being present mean that future and past things don't exist, as it will be literally false to say that Caesar is crossing the Rubicon. To say that Caesar was crossing the Rubicon is considered to be derivative and can be translated to a present ver version of the word is, such as something like it is the case that Caesar was crossing the Rubicon. Regarding the second justification on the slide, is that the present alone seems sufficient to save the phenomena of human knowledge. In fact, we really do think of the past, future, and present in, a very, in very different ways from each other. In terms of saving the phenomena of our experience with the past, the present, and the future, there seems to be some uh, differences in the way that, that those uh, are different. For example, there is a closedness to the past and an openness about the future. And these are not captured by this A series view model in which things are fixed and time just passes over them. Arguably, there is an existential presence to the present, which the other two lack. Finally, human beings only have direct experience of the present, and it seems that the past and future are thought about as derivative from this. For example, St. Augustine calls a memory a present thought of a past thing. Okay, strong counter-argument in support of the idea that existing things are not present things could be given to the idea that existing things are present things that concern truth values about past events. Not all existing things are present things since we say true things about the past. The truth of these claims about the past plausibly are in virtue of the events or things existing in the past serving as truth makers for those propositions, right? So if it's true that Caesar crossed the Rubicon, the, the truth of that proposition would seem to be secured or grounded in the existence of Caesar crossing the Rubicon in the past that guarantees that proposition's truth. Somehow, truth makers for things in the past need to be accounted for by presently existing things. Our claim is that reference to past events 
or one way to defend or respond to this argument is made possible by way of the causal impacts that things have on each other. The cause impresses the form of it as cause upon the effect, which the effect then carries on after ceasing, after the ceasing to be of the cause. So it carries it with it in the, um, in the effect that it um, carries with it. These effects can act as grounds for references to things in the past. What really underlies the possibility of this claim is the Aristotelian causal account in which the effect is a likeness of its cause. After the cause ceases to be, there remains a likeness to, to it as the effect that the caused object has within its metaphysical DNA. Now, when we think about future things or something similar that can be appealed to, uh, but instead of thinking of an effect, um, you think about a potency or a possibility that is grounded in the object that provides possibilities for certain, uh, basically, uh, events occurring in the future. And so that potency can help us to ground our thinking about the future um, without, of course, um, thinking of the future as being necessarily something that is fixed. All right, so um, I'll, I'll end here, but I just wanted to, to provide a little uh, summarization here of, of what, what we've been doing here. Um, the first is essentially to, to argue that um, the real way of thinking about or vouchsafing existential inertia to make sense of the fact of existential inertia at a very basic level is to look at the present and something being in the present. If something is in the present, since it possesses its existence in a kind of uh, incomplete or partial way, we were able to extend this notion of existence past some particular temporal moment in time, um, and then securing its continued existence into the future. This is all done within a kind of uh, presentist view. Some of you, you might say, that might make someone like uh, Henri Bergson or the existentialist really happy, uh, that the presence is the here and now, and this is where things exist and not spread across the future, the past, and the present. All right, so with that, we can take some, take some questions. All right, thank you, Dr. Suming. Thanks for that brilliant lecture. I can imagine a response to this, but I'd be interested. Like, how does the how does presentism cope with multiple like frames of time reference? I guess like a physical right. time, I guess you know, if you explain some different time frames on different subjects, right. like, how does it cope with that? So you mean like in a physics, a context yeah, of physics, yeah. So um the answer, the answer to that, and I think that's, that's a great question, really, because I think this is, you know, when you had the B-series view of McTaggart, um, you can see that this idea of time as, as a timeline um, has really been bolstered by like a, relativ a relativity 
special relativity uh, account of um, of events, essentially, physical events. Um, and you know, there's um, there's two things that I can say about this. Um, one kind of standard response to this is that uh, metaphysics uh, is able to um, account for things in a way that's disjunctive to physical accounts. Um, and the reason for this is because there's some distance between, you might say, the, the, uh, the, the ontologies um, that we're talking about, right? So first of all, the, the physical ontology uh, in which we're accounting for uh, the basic physical principles that are, that are at work uh, as understood through physics. Um, this is a fairly narrowly defined ontology. And so, you know, certain phenomenon that are tested and, and identified through a kind of uh, mathematical uh, functionality uh, and observation on experience and, or empirical observation, um, that, you know, will provide it in its scope um, a limited view. Um, the other things that a metaphysician needs to take into consideration, uh, I think, um, so I'm not an eliminativist, um, is things like, you know, consciousness, intelligence, and, and other things, and material objects, and these sorts of things. And so it seems that once you take, once you take a step back and you think about the larger scope that includes the physical, certainly your theory has to take seriously, um, you know, the, the, uh, the advances, the most plausible advances in, in science, especially physics, um, but, um, and, and be able to predict them, you know, their results in, in some way in your ontology. But they also need to, 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 it also needs to be flexible enough to account for these these other things, uh, like um, you know, the subject. What is it? You know, what is it like to be a bat type of type of thing as well? Um, and that I think amounts to there being a. Um, it's okay to have a loose fit or loose overlay between your ontological account and the and some physical account, arguably. Now the second the second answer to that question um, is. It's a fairly quick answer, um, and I'm drawn to it, but I, I think there's we have to be careful with this, and that is that here's some assumptions here. Um, the assumptions are that special relativity in, in this physical world that you've described is predicated of, uh, uh, predicated upon, and follows upon a mathematical application or mathematical modeling of the physical world. I mean, isn't that what the scientific revolution is? Right? So Galileo does. Galileo maps falling bodies through, you know, representations of conic sections. You know, Apollonius is a conic section. And so, you know, the mathematization of the physical universe begins. Well, 
and this is something that needs to be defended, I guess, but on an Aristotelian view, mathematical objects are themselves objects that exist at one level removed or one level of abstraction from the physical world. Um, and so that becomes reason to contextualize those discoveries within, uh, you know, with, within a non-basic ontology. You follow me? Like within the ontology that is through the application of these abstracted objects right upon there. So, so I think, um, yeah, I think that's, sorry, that was a long answer, but that's a really good question. And certainly a lot to be said further about that. Good job. Any other questions? Stay in the back. Yeah. Then um, you move to the back, because this is worrying me. <laughs> uh, could you repeat the question here? Oh, sure. Um, so, in terms of physical homeostasis, the, the body um, is undergoing many processes that Sure. Yeah. How does that relate to the theory of, you know, existential inertia or existential expiration? Yeah. So it seems that if those biological processes stop, then you would die. Sure. Yes. That's right. Yeah. That's that's right. So. That yeah. That that's a really good. That's a really good question. So. There are intermediate gatekeepers for existence, certainly, right? Um, we can talk about um, one gatekeeper being, you know, this uh, process of homeostasis that you nicely described, right? If that stops, if that ceases, or if something goes wrong with that, then you have the ceasing to be of that individual, right? You can even, you can even take it one step further down and uh, remember I said at the beginning of the talk, there's a natural way in which I would approach this, this topic as Thomas, right? So one of the natural ways that you would approach this as a Thomas is to say, oh, this has to do with um, the form, the substantial form, uh, continuing to inform this matter for this period of time. So, so, so it's one step more metaphysical than homeostasis. We're talking about being an animal, being an animal, right? Uh, and there's the, the basic conditions. Uh, in which that you know fails or doesn't or doesn't fail, and that wipes it out. But what's really nice about what what Professor uh, Audie uh, talked about is he's really thinking about existence at the level of existence itself. The opposite, the opposite being annihilation, right? And so the question being, um, like, let me put it this way. Why couldn't you have a situation in which the homeostasis is going along swimmingly, very nice, and then it pops out of existence? I mean, certainly that's conceivable. And, and you couldn't say, well, homeostasis. You would say, well, there is no homeostasis for existence. You have homeostasis at the level of keeping kind of body and soul together, keeping, you know, this stuff comes in, that stuff goes out, and this delicate balance occurs. But it doesn't get down to that, that super basic idea of, um, 
of basic continued existence. And that's where the whole present thing comes in. If something is present, I'm present here with you. All things being equal, nothing like my homeostasis breaks down or something. All things being equal, because I'm in the present and I remain in the, I will, I remain in the present, I will continue to exist. So it's, that's kind of the, like I said, when you raise the question of existential inertia on the street, it's, it's almost like it, it takes a whole process to even get to the, an understanding of the question itself because it's so basic. I love, actually, I love um, Heidegger talking about um, the forgetfulness of existence, right? That we have forgotten about being just the question of existence itself. Um, and and uh, he says this is connected to the idea of technology, developing technology. And there's something uh, I think very interesting about technology. Technology is a way in which we project in a way ourselves or our desires and our wants onto reality, right? We're in a temperature controlled room here, right? It's not raining on us, the sun, right? It's not cold, it's not too hot. Right? We're, able to, we're able to do this. Um, we're more and more able to project the things that we want onto reality. But and a sense of existence is to, 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 to move around, to move around the other way and just to be open to the basicness of, of what existence is and what that has to tell us, uh, you know, about itself, you know. So, yeah, very good question. Anyone else? I probably have a question five minutes after this is over. That's how it works. It's like a... <laughs> No, that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, Welcome to the talk. <laughs> um, so like one thing that I do in my lab is recreate the art as it was four billion years ago today. Um, yeah. And so in its recreation, if I'm recreating a past event, and one of the assumptions I make is that that past event has been perfectly recorded uh -huh. without any scope of object, uh, subjectivity. Yeah. Is that is a past event that has been perfectly recorded not an example of so uh, that's a great question. So in other words, is, is it accurate to phrase it something like this, that that state, the way things were in the past, has carried through, right, like you said, essentially, uh, to the present day, thereby allowing us to understand how, how the things were in the past. So in other words, if, if there is no existential inertia between that event, millions or billions of millions of years ago, uh, we wouldn't be able to know something about it now. Is that an accurate way of phrasing it? Yeah. Um, the, the answer, the, yes. So I, the, the answer is, is yes. Um, but without trying to account for for that phenomenon. So I would say yes to that whole account, except the idea that that state of affairs, the geological state of affairs exists. Rather, that geological state, when it existed, had a causal impact on something preceding it, which has a causal impact on something preceding it, okay? Um, and so, Although something is past and 
John. I mean, we're not talking about the rock, the rock story, but some kind of tradition that um, it's preserved, and we can know things about it because of that legacy of of effects that ha- that it has had. Um, which I think is kind of cool in a way because it it, it makes your job as a geologist what kind of like a, like Sherlock Holmes kind of right, where you're looking at traces and traces and traces of things to to get to some kind of fundamental understanding of things. Um, so yeah, thank you. Thank you for the question. Just a comment. I just found your talk interesting because the principle that we work on is uniformitarianism. Mm-hmm. Is that how things operate in the present is exactly all things remaining remaining equal is how they operate in the present. Oh, neat. Yeah. Oh, that's very neat. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that with me. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. So how similar is this to the idea of motion? Where Aquinas talked about the fact that it seems similar, but I'm not completely misunderstanding it. Yes. No. Very good. Yeah. No. That's um, that's a very very uh, good good question because that's that's uh that's the question that uh, has kept me up at night. Actually, on this, really. And that is, but but the the thing about motion, which is is interesting, is that. There is no category of being that is motion. Motion is a kind of um, derivative idea. So um, motion is, so it's, it's kind of neat to think about. This is Aristotle, right? So, you know, so someone's getting a tan, right? So Socrates gets tan. He goes from being pale to, to tan. Um, and so that's a kind of motion, right? So the interesting thing about that is he starts from being pale, which is a, just a way of which is, and he ends being tan. But what's that stuff in the middle? He's neither pale nor tan. Okay, so it, it kind of lacks a, a kind of uh, of uh, intelligibility in a sense. And I tried to link that up with the notion of the present, with this idea of um, that things that change possess existence in an incomplete and partial way. So we can sort of build in a kind of uh, uh, idea that to be in the present is to be between, uh, sort of at the limits, to be between the future and the past. And it's, it's a vague kind of state in the middle there, right? Now, one of the things I think is interesting, though, is that um, it's very puzzling uh, when you start to, to think about God, right? So you, you hear about the story, the story about how God sees all things at once. So everything exists now in the eternal present for God. Um, and what's, what I think is interesting about this is that it's, I think it's consistent with this basic idea of the present. Uh, the difference is that whereas the present that we experience is sort of in this twilight between changes, God sort of at all kind of the, the, the two um, ends of the, of, the, of, the, of the change, you might say, or the, or the status of being present, are just go infinite, it's like an infinite bandwidth type thing. And that just is all summed up in, in God. So this is this like this weird idea of God's eternality is, is, is this complete and full possession of, of his own life. Right, sorry, I want. So I, I kind of liked how 
That's always puzzled me. Like, what do you do with that? That's not how we usually think of eternal. We usually think of eternal as never ending. You know? uh, I like that how it, it kind of might be able to help us by reverse engineering sort of that idea of eternality into a, some understanding of what it means to be present. So, so very good question about the emotion. Yeah.